As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Ronaldo situation is a, is a total and utter nightmare. And it's no surprise that we're now seeing noises of, that Tenog effectively wants him gone as soon as possible. And by now- Hello, Dan Bardell here with you alongside George Ellick and Tim Spears. Last week we got George to deliver us his hot take straight out of the gate and this week, Tim, it's your turn to go first. I was going to talk about how amazing Arsenal look just to just to go on the back of what George was saying last week, but no, I'll, I'll spare him that. Um, I, think, I think Manchester United have officially now taken on Arsenal's mantle as the big club to laugh at in English football. It's, it's, oh, for sure. it's been Arsenal for a few years, and, and last season there was a bit of Arsenal, a bit of United, but even my mum and my sister were talking about Man United after the Brentford defeat, and they know absolutely nothing about football, and they couldn't care less, but it's still of interest to uh, to everybody. So, yeah, just incredible scenes across the country when, when those goals were going in. I mean, if they know nothing about football, they could probably run Manchester United because that's how bad it is there at the moment. George, I noticed that uh, Edouard didn't score again, by the way. Yeah, he didn't didn't even start, mate. So um, I feel I, I feel like this is a bit unfair. This whole Edouard narrative, where when you when you put up at 125 to one, I'm going to enjoy you know, it. Throw away bet at a big price, and then you look clever by saying it's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> my take is hot because I've only just thought of it because I forgot to do one. My hot take is that Newcastle can finish sixth this season. Sixth. That's, that's not that yeah. hot. I thought no, you were going to say they, they finished second. That was a hot day. <laughs> I think Newcastle fans would be absolutely delighted with sixth place. I think Manchester United obviously have got a massive chance of not finishing in the top six. West Ham have got the Conference League. I would have made them the, probably the next favourites to take that spot after the last few years. But I really think, especially if they get one more signing in Newcastle, I think they can finish top so Newcastle six and have a really, really strong Newcastle season. Newcastle 9-4 to four with the bookies to finish in the top six. It's a, luke, it's a lukewarm take, I think, that one. Okay, well, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go with my lukewarm take then. It's better than saying things like Edouard. That was hot. That is a very, very hot take, George. Let's look at the weekend's Premier League then, but we're going to start with Monday Night Football this week, which is Manchester United against Liverpool. I mean, Tim, where do we even start with Manchester United at the moment? That game against Brentford, has there ever been a worse 25-minute spell for a Premier League team, ever? The one that springs to mind 
would be Arsenal shipping four against Newcastle when they were 4 0 up. So that was four in 19 minutes. That, yeah, that's bad. But that was a, a stirring comeback instigated by Newcastle. And as, you know, as, as good as Brentford were, and they were incredible and they were ruthless, one of the greatest days in their history. But United did hand them goals, literally, via David De Gea, a combination of Maguire and Eriksen trying to play out. The fact that it was Brentford who did this to Man United is a surprise in a sort of a historical sense because it's 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 Brentford. It's not surprising the fact that Brentford are a very competent team and potentially an improving team, as we were discussing last week. But it's just utterly humiliating for Manchester United yeah. Football Club, as Gary Neville would say. And we're they're still we're still looking for that for that rock bottom. When does it come? I don't think it can come on Monday because they've already been thrashed by five, at home, at home by Liverpool. It's incredible. It's a circus. I love reading about it. I love I love watching it. It's one of the biggest stories in in English football in in recent years. This capitulation and it shows no sign of slowing down. Yeah, George. I mean, if you look at where Brentford were in the in the football pyramid, I don't know, ten years ago, let's say, and, and where Manchester United were just just before that. Now, to to, to look at that, how Brentford just absolutely ripped them to shreds, took advantage of frailties, took advantage of weaknesses. Now, Brentford are a team that know what they are. They know what they're doing. They've got a plan behind the scenes. Manchester United now just tick none of those boxes. I think that was what was so interesting about this game and this story was just how striking the contrast is between the two clubs. You know, not only did you have Brentford beating Manchester United, but you had Brentford in their shiny new stadium whilst United's famous Old Trafford rots, as their fans say. You have United who are being run by American owners who have no affinity to the club who, you know, as we know, have made a lot of money out of the club itself compared to Brentford, who are owned by a fan, Matthew Benham, a fan who is an expert in what it is to win football matches. You know, he made his money by being able to accurately predict betting, you know, betting on football matches. That is how he amassed his fortune and he's used that expertise in terms of building a football club. You have Thomas Frank, a manager who was part of the club during the spell of a previous manager in Dean Smith. Good succession planning built by the club. No need to go and tear everything apart and start again when an influential manager left. Compared to Manchester United, who are on to their fifth, sixth managerial appointment since the all-important manager moved on. Brentford are an example of, of how to run a football club, of how to, you know, they are the blueprint, I think, not just for small EFL clubs now, for every single club and how to recruit well and how to build sustainably and not just set fire to cash in, in terms of chasing after some golden egg. Whereas Manchester United have to now be the threat. They have to be what clubs look at as saying, if we make bad decisions, if we do not employ the right people, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, things can still go incredibly wrong. And again, when you look at the players who scored the goals for Brentford, whether it's Mbomo, whether it's Jensen, it's smart recruitment. It is looking at areas where players are still represent monetary value and can be sold on for profit afterwards rather than Manchester United who just seem intent on fishing in the same waters just going after players who are playing for some of the biggest clubs in the in, in the world but are available and are going to come at a premium because they've already proven themselves at the top level. It is not a smart way to recruit. You see no top clubs doing that at all. It's like going after Galacticos whose stars have already fallen. It doesn't make any sense. I don't think it's going to be rock bottom. I think as Tim said, we you know we've seen them get beat heavily against Liverpool. Um, we're going to get onto the game shortly, and I think there are possibly some reasons in isolation about this game that could be um, of you know of relief to Manchester United fans. But given how poor the performance was, given how much of the damage was self-inflicted by Manchester United players and by their setup and by the whole mentality of the club, and just how long this malaise has gone on, it, it doesn't feel like the kind of performance and result that's going to represent an opportunity to bounce back, especially given 
after the in the aftermath of the match itself, we've seen the club being linked to 25 players. I mean, it's it's just absolutely ridiculous what seems to be going on. And none of them on paper, apart from possibly Casimero, look to be particularly what they need or, or the kind of characters they need or, or, or smart signings. And then you look at the finances involved and it's hard to make a case for anyone being a sensible signing based on the amount of money it's going to take them to bring in these players. And they're being held to a ransom, whether it's Rabiot's mum demanding that he's the highest paid player in the Premier League to now the, the wages being touted by those in the media about, about the, the signing of Casemiro as well. It's, it's a total and utter mess and, and a circus is absolutely right. And yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see more days like Saturday before before it gets any better. Yeah, before we get into the actual game, let's listen to a clip from the Talk of the Devils podcast that's on The Athletic. Now, if you're a Manchester United fan or just someone who gets joy from the pain of others, then you might want to listen to this clip now and listen to the podcast in general. Let's hear the clip then as Andy Mitten wonders what might happen at Old Trafford if Liverpool dish out another battering on Munda. Because if Liverpool were four up, as they were in the equivalent fixture last season at half-time... I think that would be the straw which breaks the camel's back for a lot of moderate Manchester United fans. I remember giving an example with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, 2nd of October last year. Uh, I said, he's starting to lose the moderates here. And he lost them. He never got them back and he lost his job six weeks later. I think that sensible Manchester United fans who might not have any interest in the politics, they would have a breaking point as well. And if United run the way to losing the, the third game at the start of the season, I think you're going to see a, a major real-life reaction. What form that takes, we don't know. But it might just be that natural um, reaction. It's, it's going to be on television. And fans can show many ways of showing their disdain. Yep, could be some hostility at Old Trafford on Monday night, Tim. But I'm not even saying this to tie the mic, but at this point, a, a heavy defeat is... I just expect it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, really interesting listening to Andy there. There was sort of apathy last season, really, finishing sixth and trundling along, but that, that will quickly turn to anger. And that position of 20th in the in the table is very stark and will bring it home for a lot, a lot of Man United fans as, as to just the, the crisis that they're in, really. I'm also interested to see if Eric Ten Hag escapes criticism. You know, he's he's the man in charge of putting these players on the field and coaching them. And, and he's been in charge since, I guess, April, effectively, when he was appointed, you know. Um, he's had a whole pre-season to work with them. And I think we've said the last couple of weeks, you know, we've got to go easy on him. And that's absolutely right. But when you're playing Ericsson in a false nine one week and a, and a DM the next, then you have to start to, to question the decisions he's making. But obviously the problems are far, far, far bigger than him. And go back a very long time, that figure of a billion pounds, I just... I, I, Really struggled to get my head around it. They spent a billion pounds on players in the, in the past decade and got worse. It's um, it's astonishing mismanagement. The, the scale of which we probably haven't seen in financial terms in English football before. Do you think Ten Hag is blameless? I, I, it's very difficult to blame him, as, as as Tim says, George, in that you know he's barely had any time. He's not really been able to get in the kind of players that that he would want. But he, it's almost he's trying to get players to do things that they can't do. I watch David De Gea, I watch Harry Maguire, and you know Harry Maguire doesn't want to give the ball to David De Gea. David De Gea doesn't want to give the ball to Harry Maguire because they don't trust each other. You got Ericsson even managing to look bad, and Ericsson's a sensational footballer. To, to make Christian Ericsson look bad, there obviously is something wrong on the pitch, but... How much blame can you put to Ten Hag at the moment, do you think? I think it's very difficult to know. He's certainly not blameless, but but similarly, and he kind of alluded to it as well, when you see your goalkeeper who, you know, for all of De Gea's faults, he's probably been Manchester United's most consistent performer 
um, over the last over the, the, the difficult times. That's not to say that he's been faultless. He absolutely hasn't been, but he has been a fairly dependable pair of hands when things haven't necessarily been so good. I completely disagree. Well, I, I'm not necessarily saying he has been blameless. I, I, I think I think United fans themselves have seen De Gea as a I mean, reliability isn't the right word. He's been someone who has been who has shown up to the fans when when needed. Who has been probably a little bit of quality. He exactly. Down, like I'll he, give him that. I think you can set him apart from the other underperforming players who've seemingly been like fairly spineless throughout the whole thing. And the first goal, I, th- I think when your keeper makes that kind of a mistake, and for all of De Gea's mistakes, that is is you know, probably the most pronounced. As Tenag said, your game plan does somewhat go out of the window. And I don't think you can necessarily legislate for, for individual mistakes. Standards should be higher, of course, but there is quite clearly a a real confidence issue running throughout that, that Manchester United side as well. And now, you know, I, I think normally when you see an elite coach take on a, a group of players who have played at the levels we've seen this United squad before, normally you, you see a you know a clear improvement in terms of the way they play going into the season. But there have been other circumstances. You know, the Ronaldo situation is a, is a total and utter nightmare for Manchester United. You know, if we go back 12 months, the club were rejoicing that they managed to re-sign their former player one of the best players they've ever had one of the greatest players the world's ever seen from their net from their from their neighbors um grasp and now it's it's got to go down as one of the most catastrophic signings not just because Ronaldo himself isn't what they need you know he had a decent season last season the goal tally was okay but I think the destruction of having the poster boy for Manchester United in this century so clearly trying to force his way out whilst also taking on a, an extortionate wage at this stage of his career and embodying the lethargy that has you know summarized Manchester United's on pitch performances recently is is a nightmare and it's no surprise that we're now seeing noises of, of that Ten Hag um, effectively wants him gone as soon as possible but then they have no one to replace him with as Tim said playing Christian Eriksen as a false nine in Ronaldo's absence on opening day was just a, a sign of just how bad that the transfer window had been so I don't think he's blameless I think that the, the most striking thing for me throughout all of this um and there are many reasons to, cr- to criticise the Glazers, but the fact that the people making the decisions upstairs at Manchester United at Old Trafford, the fact that there still isn't some kind of a sporting director, some kind of a director of football, somebody with some kind of track record in terms of being able to recruit well, being able, knowing his way around the transfer market after window after window of overspending and bad player ID, it must just come down to just sheer arrogance of, of the people who have to make that hire that, that, that it's not necessary. It seems mad to me um, that we've seen, you know, we've seen Dan Ashworth move on and not just Manchester United, that there are so many other Premier League or below wise, clever people whose actual job it is, is to manage this side of the business. But one of the biggest clubs in the world don't think they need that. Um, and I think it's never been more evident than it is at the moment that that is absolutely essential for them if they're ever going to get out of this slump this is isn't a solution and there's a bit of a classic sort of fan last resort not that i'm a man united fan but where are the kids like this this unbelievable academy that they've got uh, they won the youth cup last year that they must have some exceptionally talented youngsters who can surely come in and show the desire and motivation that others aren't and do what the head coach asked them to i think do. manchester united fans would have i mean they're, i think they are pretty patient in all honesty at the moment but i think they'd have a degree of patience if there was a case yeah. of you were seeing young players bloody like at the moment what do they lose by james and, that, Guy? I, I and, and, and now he's up, up for sale which i think a lot of fans would be right I mean, to be disappointed. That, that makes no sense and, but, but that but there's an no irony sense. as well where garner is the kind of profile signing that manchester united should be looking to make if he wasn't even their player you look back at the team that Fergie built you look back at the players you know the way that he built that team the way they recruited it was it was looking and, and plucking like the cherry picking the best homegrown talent within clubs 
perceived to be smaller than Manchester United. James Garner had, has had an unbelievably good 18 months at, at, at Forest. He's shown himself to be a quality midfield player. He already belongs to them. He's a Manchester United fan. He's somebody who, you know, the whole club, the whole fan base want to see. Not only are they not playing him, but they're putting him up for sale. It's just how, how he can't be of use even as even as like a PR stunt at this stage, just to get people on yeah. side again, is yeah. it, it beggars belief. It's absolutely baffling. Let's look at Liverpool then a little bit, Tim. Stodgy start, Liverpool. Not the start that was expected at, at all. I thought Fulham played very, very well. And I did think that Crystal Palace had a good game plan at Anfield that, that worked. And then obviously the sending off, which we'll come on to, was mindless. But it's so far not the Liverpool way under Klopp. Not, not playing with any real temper. Feels like Mane's a massive miss at the moment, not not being in that side, and just not the start we were expecting. Mane's a miss, and you're right, something doesn't quite feel right there, and there's a bit of tetchiness around the club as well, speaking publicly, not just Klopp, but Milner as well, about uh, them starting slowly in games, and I know they've got they've got a horrendous list of injuries at the moment. Um, Central midfield's a problem at the moment. It is, Thiago's out, Firmino's out, Matip, Jota, Canate, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Curtis Jones... Joe Gomez added to the list last week. Henderson could only make the bench. He wasn't fit enough to start. Now Nunes is suspended. That is that is a ridiculous list. And I think we have to take that into account. They also dominated that Palace game for long periods. Yes, they should have won. And we saw uh, Palace against Arsenal. They can cause teams problems. I did think Liverpool would thrash them personally. So yeah, they're already playing catch-up really. We've seen that they can go on steamroller type runs and win 15 in a row. But unfortunately for them... Man City can do that as well, so it's only it's only two games and four points in, but but it it it, it does matter with Diaz and Salah and all the other talents they've got. I'd still expect them to beat Man United on on Monday, but there'll be some there'll be some slight concerns there from Klopp at the start they've made definitely. Tim just touched on it then, George. Four points on the base of it isn't a lot, but even after two games, just the way Manchester City operate and the and the way they win games, four points already does feel you know it's going to be difficult to pull back. There's there is no margin for error with those two because the Standards that they've set have been so high. Well, that's it. When you look at how many games per season Manchester City drop points in, it's very few. So if you're already dropping points in two games out of two, you're not leaving yourself much room for error in the following, you know, 36. And and for Liverpool, you know, they, they come into this game. There's a massive expectation that they will win. It's also a game that obviously matters a lot to their fans beyond leaving the Premier League. Premier League tilt and chasing down Manchester City because they love to to beat Manchester United. But the injury issues are, are significant. I think you know, I I think having Nat Phillips playing centre back. You no, know, he's not in my mind necessarily a, a Premier League centre back. Um, you know, he played at Bournemouth last season for the second half of the campaign. Um, I wasn't particularly impressed with him there for the second half of a Championship season. You've then got Nunez coming out with with you know. As to mention the injury troubles up front as well. Could this mean that Carvalho makes his first start in the front three? A player that I really like nearly scored an unbelievable goal to win the game against Palace. Um, that le- that that volley, that just whistled wide. But again, is he ready for this kind of a an atmosphere, this kind of game? So look, I, I think Liverpool are overwhelming favourites to win this one. Um, I do think in games like this, sometimes the form book kind of goes out the window. I think at least United know that they're playing in in a way. For United having slipped on two banana skins, it might suit them a little bit not to have the expectation. The, the burden of expectation on their shoulders we'll see but similarly they will have probably some trauma after what's happened in the past in these games against Liverpool where not only are they are they well beaten but they're toyed with for, for the majority of it as well so I think it'll be interesting to see what Liverpool's team is when, when the teams are announced on, on Monday evening because it could you know they could be significantly weakened but it's probably clutching at straws eventually and, and with and with Luis Diaz and, and Mo Salah playing it doesn't really matter what's behind you given the, the amount of time they're going to get on the ball in, in United's final third it, it seems very unlikely that they're not going to be able to hurt them. 
Yeah, and there's a great piece from Andy Jones on Mark Carey on how many points a team can drop if they want to win the title. City drew five and six games in the last two seasons. When Liverpool won the league in 2019-20, they only drew three games and lost three. So they are already on the back foot. And normally I'd ask you for predictions, but at this point I might as well ask you what the meaning of life is. So I'm not even going to bother with that. <laughs> and we're going to move straight over to Tottenham against Wolves, which is the Saturday lunchtime game. And Tim, it's also the Tim Spears derby. <laughs> yeah, do you know, I'm not even going though <laughs> <laughs> that's very disappointing that's very I'm disappointing I'm going to a festival Dan nice oh, yeah. team. I'm, I'm going to try and watch it though I will watch it at yeah. a festival no, <laughs> no I'll, what I'll, festival I'll, is this I want to go they've got, they got, they got the games on no this will be in the pub beforehand then it's off okay. to the festival it's only down the road Spurs rescuing a point in stoppage time at Stamford Bridge Tim they, Chelsea I thought were very very good on the day you can't legislate for that but it's great for Spurs that they got that 2-2 draw and it just shows what Conte teams are all about do you think that late goal of the reaction after it being with their fans do you think it will galvanise them heading into this next yeah, game? Yeah I, I agree with you I, I, I was tending to look more at Chelsea's excellent performance rather than rather than Spurs struggling to get a foothold in the game which they did but I felt that was more down to, to Tuchel's tactics more than anything Chelsea should have won that game and they'll, they'll have been kicking themselves afterwards or, or kicking the opposition manager or whatever it might be but Spurs for me they've kind of shown two really important facets that they'll need if they're going to challenge you know top three top two or, or even better this season they've had goals from five different scorers so far which, which is massive I mean Son hasn't scored yet Kane got off the mark at the weekend so that bodes really well especially as soon as you know Richarlison hasn't started a game yet none of their new signings have started a game yet I thought that was a big thing to come out of the game is that just having that extra forward option in bringing Richarlison kind of it got them back to 1-1 really didn't it having Richarlison next to Kane up there with him that, that kind of pulled the momentum back Back to Spurs for a little bit so just having that extra player mm. to bring on is massive and changing yeah absolutely up. and then the fight that they showed I mean we, you know we spoke last week about Tottenham's record at Stamford Bridge what was it what, one win in 37 something insane like that you know I don't think you can underestimate from a Tottenham fans point of view that the fear of going to Chelsea away I mean a point was a fantastic result for, for in the eyes of the majority of them and Conte's fear too maybe of Chelsea he brings up Chelsea a lot in, in press conferences as a sort of a team and a club that, that Spurs should be aiming to look to be the thing with Spurs is this has to be backed up now with, with victories over Wolves and Nottingham Forest in, in the next week or so if they're going to really sort of start to, to stake a claim for what they're looking to do this season. They've got some injury worries as well but no, I was, I was from a Spurs point of view really heartened with them with how they claim that comeback at the weekend. Yeah, I think Spurs fans would have taken a point beforehand, a lot of Spurs yeah, fans who definitely. I spoke to so then to get the point having not played great and Chelsea being as good as they were just a, just a huge day for Tottenham Hotspur. George, Tim's touched on the injuries there. Christian Romero could miss up to four weeks. That's a big blow for Spurs because he's a massive part of how they play. To, to me, he almost reminds me of Conte a little bit on the pitch in the, in the way he plays the game. He'll, he'll be a huge miss because he, he was a big part of their resurgence in the second half of the season. Yeah, quality player. And, and, and as you say, I think his um, battling qualities kind of summarise what Antonio Conte Spurs are all about and he will be a loss you know they, they are lucky they've got some quality in that area in terms of depth uh, I, I guess Sanchez is the likeliest one who'll come in um, ahead of this um, I thought Perisic showed that's a downgrade it, though is that, that is a downgrade down, how often do you get a, a, an injury to a key player that isn't a downgrade but you know I think it's all about no true um, you know San, Sanchez isn't a bad option to have as your as your backup uh, centre-back um, and 
Perisic, I thought, was was impressive when he came on. I think we're going to see Spurs score quite a few from set pieces if his delivery is going to consistently be as good as it was after he came on against Chelsea. It wouldn't surprise me if he came in for Sessegnon for this, um, which I guess if we're looking at upgrades and down, downgrades would be an upgrade for them. In my view, I, I kind of thought that we would see Spurs have more of the game against Chelsea than we did. You know, I know Chelsea were at home. I know they're very strong at Stamford Bridge, but I, I was surprised maybe by how much Chelsea dominated the board and dominated the territory. And and that wasn't, I don't think, a game plan from from uh, from Spurs. I don't think Spurs were happy to relinquish the ball. I think Chelsea just controlled the game far better. Now, obviously, the, the important thing here is that the points were shared. They drew 2-2. And Spurs, I think, on balance of play, will be delighted by that point because, you know, they were chasing the ball for, for the majority of the game. I, I'm not necessarily downgrading the way I, I perceive Spurs to be this season, but I was maybe a little bit surprised that they weren't able to impose themselves a bit more on the game. I, I thought Chelsea were, were excellent. Tim, let's move on to Wolves now. I described them on Sky earlier as having exploded into life this transfer window now. <laughs> they are they're making some some you're smart the first signings, to say that Dan, I think. Some good signing. It's not it's not <laughs> my favourite thing to have to say on a podcast to be honest, George. I'm not I'm not gonna lie about it. But now that special relationship again and the, the profile of player that they bring in is is paying dividends because that's a that's a big signing particularly in central midfield with Matthias Nunes. A huge signing. I mean I had a good look at him early this year when David Ornstein first broke the news that, that Wolves were looking at him and came to the conclusion that he was he was too good for Wolves, to be honest. You know, when you've got Pep Guardiola saying he's one of the best players in the world, you know, he doesn't say that kind of thing flippantly. And yeah, the special relationships come through again. Wolves have spent twenty seven million on Goncalo Guedes and thirty eight million on Matthias Nunes in one week. Both guest a few clients, both Portuguese, but you know, it's easy to to deride that as opposition fans always will do. Oh, I think it's um, clever. I think it's really it, clever. It works for them. This will be twenty three players of Portuguese nationality in their first team since two thousand sixteen, which is remarkable but like I say it does work for them they've got their own little Portuguese community in one corner of Wolverhampton and the the Mendes thing again again easy easy to deride it but it's he looks after them probably more than than we've seen any of his other clubs across Europe helped by the fact that his agency and Wolves' owners are, are linked financially. So it's been a massive week Morgan Gibbs-White potentially off to Nottingham Forest we see today for a similar fee to Nunes, which sort of blows my mind a little bit. I mean, that's inc- um, that is incredible. That that is incredible business from Wolves, in my but opinion. But it feels like Wolves' um, team is sort of coming together now. I watched them against Fulham last weekend, and they they really struggled in the final third. They had an xG of 0.86, created a couple of decent chances. Obviously missing a striker, but also missing this creative type from centre and midfield, and that link between midfield and attack which they've never really had in the Premier League. You know, Neves sits a bit deeper. He's not got the pace or the athleticism to play further forward. Matinho is the one who recycles possession. And Dendonka from midfield is the one who sort of breaks the lines, but he hasn't got the goal-scoring attributes or the agility to make a massive difference in those areas. Nunes can do that. He's, he's physical. He can dribble. He's creative. He can score spectacular goals exceptional through balls you know he's he's sort of got the lot really speak to a lot of people in the game this week and they are surprised on the face of it that Wolves have managed to snare him but obviously we know as you say that special relationship is um, is the reason and probably one of the best signings that he's been able to facilitate in the past few years Can can I stick up for Morgan Gibbs-White in the face of Dan's slander (laughs) <laughs> it's it's not that I think he's a bad player. I just think that fee for Wolf to pull that in is incredible. I think incredible. Th- there's no denying, as Tim says. I mean, Nunes wouldn't have gone to another um, mid-table, top-tier club. Um, it's clearly the relationship with Mendes that's meant they've been able to get them. So, of course, if you're looking at Wolves' business, if no money has been spent and they've swapped Nunes for, for, for Gibbs White, it's clearly good business. But 
it's not as simple as that. Forrest couldn't have gone out and signed a player of Nunes' stature and, and ability. They may have done so in Gibbs White. I think the £45 million fee is a bit of a misnomer. You've got David Ornstein saying that it's £25 million up front and then presumably £20 million on, on add-ons. Uh, you'd think a, a big part of that will be Forrest staying up. If Gibbs White helps him stay up, then, then he'll ultimately be worth that. I'm sure... Um, and similarly, if they are to get relegated, then Gibbs White showed last season and has shown in the past couple of years that he's basically as good as it gets in the championship. You know, if they get relegated this season and Morgan Gibbs White is playing eight or ten for them um, in, in the championship, then they've probably got the best player in the league. Uh, he's 22 years of, years of age. He's played a lot of football for a player. Uh, I think he's matured a lot. You know, Tim will know more than me, but I think there were certainly some issues in terms of his application early on in his career. I think Steve Cooper being his um, England youth team manager is the, the, the manager who's going to get the best out of him. Uh, and he has a good relationship with, with him as well, which is crucial. So I think a 22 year old attacking, creative, goal scoring, English homegrown midfielder for 25 million that can rise if he is a successful signing um, isn't bad business at all. And if he, if he reaches his potential, then, then, you know, he will be a player that will be linked to the, to the biggest clubs in this country in a couple of years time as well. And, and then you can guarantee the fee will be a lot more than 45. So it, it does strike me a little bit that some of the people who can't, and I'm not saying you, Dan, at all, but a lot of the people who seem very confused by the signing maybe hadn't seen too much of him, certainly at Sheffield United last season and previously at Swansea and others, um, where he has been very impressive. I, I always I always felt, and I did write this at the time, that he just needed a full season in the championship. Mm. He was never he was never going to force his way in, in, into Wolves' first team. He needed to drop down and have that championship season like Madison did at Norwich, like like Grealish to an extent did at Villa, Harvey Barnes we saw drop down, Mason Mount we saw drop down. I always felt he needed that, and last season he absolutely flew in the championship. He hasn't quite taken that on in the first two games in the Premier League for Wolves, but Wolves have got a bit of a stunted attack. Positionally, I'll be interested to see where he fits in at Forest. He, he traditionally likes being a 10, but at Sheffield United he drifted in from the right to great effect, played it as false nine on occasion as well. So he's, he's got the lot, he has matured, and going to Sheffield United was a massive part of that. I think it'll be the, the making of him. He's better than Ingard. Probably, well, I would say it's probably not as much money. No, it's not. Got a I don't know. No. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything any, anymore. I knew I'd get an impassioned defence of an EFL Player of the Year last last year, George. I knew I'd get that from you. <laughs> right then, let's do predictions for this one. Then I can't, still can't see past the Spurs win it, but I am very impressed with Wolves, and I will say your piece on Wolves this morning that I read, Tim, was very, very good, explaining everything. I enjoyed. Not the right word. I didn't enjoy it, but it was <laughs> very interesting. That. Prediction from you, Tim. Uh... I, th- I think Wolves, with a bit of momentum and a new signing, who'll probably play because Nunes played for Sporting last week, um, I think they can claim a point. They've won their last three trips to, or three of the last four to Tottenham away. They've got, got a good record there, and I, I can see them making a point. Yeah, George? I, I think I agree. I think it'll be low scoring. Um, I think uh, you know it might be a 1 0 home win or, or a low scoring draw. I, I think the way that Wolves play will look to frustrate Spurs. We know how good Spurs are exploiting um, any space left in behind, but I don't think Wolves will, get, will give them that. So it could be a. I don't think it'll be a great spectacle for the neutral, let's say that, at 12.30 on Saturday. Okay. You won't change my mind. I'm Never still do. for a Spurs win. I still fancy Spurs. But it will be a good interesting barometer of, of where Spurs are, actually, this game, in line with what you two have said there. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be enjoying it, even if it's not a great game for the neutral. Let's look now at Bournemouth v Arsenal, which is Saturday tea time kickoff. Now, George, you weren't convinced about Arsenal in the Palace win. Was there anything in the win to change it's your mind? It's important sometimes to admit when things change, you're allowed to change your mind. And, um, and I'm not there yet. <laughs> they were. Are you not there? Well, yet? I mean, they were. They were. It was classic Arsenal, wasn't it? They were scintillatingly good 
for 88 minutes, weren't they? I mean, some of their attacking play is just incredible to watch. Whether it's Jesus and the, 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 the touch of the finish for the first goal just was, was yeah, it was, it was. we hadn't really seen him do it that much for Manchester City in, in recent seasons. It was a moment of sheer quality. I think Martinelli has started the season in, in incredible form. They all just look like they're so full of confidence and that they look like they played with each other for a long time, which is, you know, when you compare their pre-season to Manchester United's pre-season, this is what a team should look like who have been drilled effectively and, and, and know exactly what their job is and what their roles are between each other. But, and there, there's always got to be, be a, a but with Arsenal, just the goals that were conceded were just so soft. And, and this, I think, is just going to continue to be their undoing. But good reaction. Definitely. Good no, reaction, no, but I, I don't think it's necessarily even like a mentality thing. They, they are, I think... I, I kind of think that was a one-off. I think it was a one-off, just lacklustre. I mean, it was kind of similar in, in terms of against Palace. Although the, in Palace, the whole the whole system changed. The, the way that they approached the game changed when they went ahead. At least here, they kept their foot on the gas. But I, I just do worry. And, and it's understandable. You know, Saliba is a, is a young centre-back. You know, I thought he probably should have given a penalty away in the game against Palace. He then scores an own goal um, against Leicester. And for every other second of both games, apart from those two moments, he was exceptional. I mean, that is the nature of a young, talented centre-back who who maybe isn't quite as streetwise as, as, as you know, older, um, less talented players who, who could be there instead. You no, know, I, I think this is an incredibly exciting Arsenal side. And I think Arteta's stock is probably the highest now than it has been at any other time in his in his Arsenal career based on those first two performances. But I, I do, and, and away against Bournemouth, I see no reason why the, the soft centre should be any issue here because I think their attacking play should be too much for Bournemouth. It's when they start coming up against sides who are a bit more solid defensively, who will be able to deal with the threats, you know, the, the youthful exuberance of, of, of their attacking threat a bit better than what we've seen so far who might punish them for their for their defensive lapses and, and you know as I said a bit of a soft centre where even Leicester who failed to threaten for pretty much the majority of the game still managed to, to score twice Tim Bournemouth they, Scott Parker pretty much said that they wrote off last week against Manchester City home game against Arsenal would they be going in with a similar mentality or do you think they'll think that they can get something it's an interesting um, approach Scott Parker has taken publicly because yeah he's basically admitted that he wrote that game off he was very defeatist before the start of the season, saying the sort of the squad's not good enough, or you know the, the signings potentially needs to be a bit better. See, I'm not really sure it's the done thing really to sort of just publicly come out and say how bad your team is and how they're going to lose games. He's quite niche, Scott Barker. He's he always been niche, quite niche in a lot of ways, including his yeah. in his uh, in his fashion as well. I don't really see them troubling Arsenal. There's such a good, there's such a feel good factor about Arsenal at the moment, and such a momentum which they've really carried on from last season. Even when they didn't qualify for the Champions League, you know, on the last day they were getting a, a stand innovation and a lap of honour at the Emirates, and everyone's very buoyant about um, their prospects. And I can see people getting very, very, very carried away with Arsenal because if they manage, I'm one to, of them. if well, if if they manage to beat Bournemouth, which you'd expect them to, they've got Fulham and Villa next two and then after that it's Man United tough, tough games, tough it's, games. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that it's Man United and then after that it's Everton so we could be talking about seven from seven here to start the season everybody except for George you say people getting are getting carried away and then you were talking about seven, <laughs> seven from seven <laughs> I can see it happening no um, uh, I, th- I just think they're a very very good mix of physicality and technical brilliance nine to one they're top on Christmas Sorry, Day um, interesting I'll mm. take that Sinchenko's come in and look really good Gabriel Jesus obviously you know we should have bought into that pre-season form because he's carried it on into the campaign so yeah I think there's a bit of a charge from North London this season I, I can see I can see both of those two clubs doing very well just as you've made the move there as well really 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 exciting for you. <laughs> Two tasty games still to come as we'll look at Leeds v Chelsea and Newcastle against Manchester City. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, 
Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dan Bardell here alongside George Alec and Tim Spears looking ahead to the weekend's fixtures and let's turn our attention to the Sunday TV games now, starting at Ellen Road as Leeds take on Chelsea at 2pm. Now Sterling, James is the man over, Reese James! Yeah! Chelsea have their lead back! And it's Reese James! We already spoke about Chelsea a little bit, George, but they were impressive in that game against Spurs. There was a lot of fascinating tactical stuff that, that went on in that game. Even though they didn't win, I think that game showed what a clever manager Thomas Tuchel is. What, the, the tactics of holding on to, to Conte's hand in a handshake for a little bit longer just to instigate. No, the, the change of formation when it wasn't working and Spurs yeah, made yeah, changes I, and he went to a back four for a bit. I just thought it showed how clever I, I, he is. I agree. I, I thought Chelsea were, were brilliant. There was kind of a moment going into that game, as, as I mentioned in the Spurs segment, thinking that Spurs were going to be able to serve it up to, to Chelsea. And in that first 10 minutes, it was it was, it was was almost like a cup game. Chelsea just just controlled the game, had all the possession, were, were camped in Spurs' half and, and Spurs were chasing shadows. They weren't able to turn that dominance into, into three points, which would be frustrating. But you know, we mentioned in our, in our pre-season podcast that there was so much negativity surrounding Chelsea. A lot of people writing them off as being as not being top four as possibly being a, a side who are going to struggle ahead of the campaign based on a couple of quotes in pre-season but you look at how good the the squad is um and the, some of the performances in recent times under Tuchel you know they were Champions League winners not so long ago I, I think they look like they are maybe still a striker short although I really like the start that Havertz has made to the season I thought he was excellent despite you know he's never going to be the most clinical it seems but I thought he was very lively in the final third against against Spurs beyond the missed chances I, I think we're going to see him and, and and Sterling come good fairly soon in terms of goal scoring but uh, yeah so I, I, I think they've started the season pretty well it was a much better performance than we saw at Goodison on opening day and um, and I think they'll enjoy themselves against the lead side who, who are going to be pretty open even if we don't have the same incredible touchline drama that we had in that game which I absolutely loved well, we might have some more Jesse Marshall that's true yeah, yeah. in his first game as well didn't he so it could be you know two, two hotheads 
two hothead managers coming up against each other here. Team Chelsea's three goals so far this season have been scored by Jorginho, Rhys James and Koulibaly. Nothing yet from Sterling or Havertz who George was just raving about. They need a striker. I feel like there's a lot of teams at the moment, an unusual amount of teams in the Premier League mm. that need a striker and Chelsea mm-hmm. are definitely one of them. Leeds potentially one of them as well. I mean, George said there about Havertz not being clinical enough and I, that's the thing with him and Sterling, you know. Fantastic players, but you wouldn't call either of them clinical. You know, Sterling's known to miss a sitter or two as well. doesn't necessarily have to be a classic number nine striker that comes in, but they do need a goal scorer. And I think we've seen, you know, in their in their, in their their dominance, certainly of um, the majority of that Spurs game, you know, they, sh- they should have been turning that dominance into more goals and a victory. But I do I do back them in the transfer market purely on what we've seen so far from their recruitment this summer. It's, it's, it's you know, Sterling, a fantastic addition. Koulibaly, a unbelievable quality and Cucurello as well I think again a great addition and then you know we talked earlier about the names that Man United are linked with being an absolute shambles well Chelsea being linked with Anthony Gordon and Wesley Fofana two exceptional young players um, who would absolutely fit in, into what they're trying to do at Chelsea so it's it's so incredibly competitive isn't it I, th- I think we're going to we're going to call it a top five now rather than top six so, so, certainly for the time being a, a, a big five or a big six in terms of teams anyway rather than clubs but it's it's so hard to sort of call and separate those five teams because Chelsea I think I said a couple of weeks ago you know you may, maybe expect them to have a bad season but purely because they're due one but with the business they've done and what we've seen from the opening two games they're going to be right up there there's no doubt about that very very good in that game against Spurs I was really really impressed as I've said multiple times on this podcast already now George Bamford limped off against Southampton his run of bad luck with injuries just isn't going anywhere but he could be fit for this one but Rodrigo has come to the fore suddenly been playing a lot of his games not as a striker for Leeds but suddenly he's bagging goals yeah, Rodrigo bought from Valencia where he was a striker not a particularly prolific one but certainly a striker employed basically in central midfield by Marcelo Bielsa and then gets sent up front for the first time for Leeds when Bamford uh, hobbles off and gets a, a pretty important couple of goals you know I, I think for Bamford it, it's been quite a long time now since he was fit and firing for Leeds and I think it, it might be time to start looking at some kind of succession plan. Um, Joe Gellhart is, is the obvious candidate for that but whether or not he's ready yet to, to start starting up front for Leeds I'm not sure so this kind of not slice of luck but having Rodrigo come in and score those two poachers goals uh, as he did on Saturday could be a bit of a blessing and I think for Leeds uh, it would be a surprise I think if Bamford did start here and we didn't see Rodrigo um, taking on that role again and the good news for Leeds fans is that Phil Hay has been writing that Leeds are finding it hard to control teams who attack from wide <laughs> areas so that does sound quite ominous coming up against Chelsea's wingbacks they are not sure rubbing his hands. department at all talk about clinical finishers Rich James is a pretty good well, finisher, was, to, be, to be perfectly I mean, honest with Norris you. Norris kind of treats it like a penalty. He decided to dive early and kind of down the middle. Sometimes you just got to guess. <laughs> Sometimes you got to guess as a goalkeeper, yeah. haven't you? I think, yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a bizarre piece of goalkeeping, to be fair. Let's have predictions then for this one. Any surprises here, Tim? It's hard to make a case for Leeds, isn't it, in this one? Um, Decent start for them, four points, though. I've got a mate who's a Leeds fan and he was complaining. I was thinking, four points, first two games. Calm down. No, yeah, fair point. It has, it has been a good start, but um, I do think Chelsea win pretty comfortably. 2 0. Yep. Same. Yeah, 3 1, maybe. Yeah, I think Chelsea 2 0. Newcastle v Manchester City is the final game that we're going to look at today, the Sunday 4.30 kickoff. Now, George, according to the bookies, there is now a 73% chance of Manchester City winning the league after a strong start to the season. Would you go along with that? 73%? Bang on. I think I'd, I'd, I wouldn't rather I wouldn't rather well, I wouldn't want to sell that. I think I'd probably be, be higher, or higher rather than lower. Um, they've just started the season so well. 
they just look like sometimes with with, with Pep City, um, you know, you can see some teething issues early in the season. We saw that last season when they uh, lost to Spurs on opening day, especially because of the amount of, of business, especially going out that they've had to um, deal with. And then a, a completely different unit of striker coming in, playing up front. But they just look you know, unbeatable after those first couple of games, creating chances at will, controlling the ball, giving up very few chances at the, at the other end. Two game, two games is a is a very very small sample size, and things are going to change very quickly. And, and maybe they don't have the squad depth that we've seen in the past. A little bit surprised maybe to see a, a couple of their young players go out on loan in the last couple of weeks. Um, James McAtee's gone yeah, to yeah, Sheffield United. Liam Delap's gone to gone to Stoke. Um, you'd have thought, given the players that they've lost, they would need you know, given those players were often on the bench last season in the Premier League. You'd have thought they might want that depth kept uh, nearby, but obviously they think for their development, they want them to go out and play games, which is understandable. But as long as this team is is in the, the kind of mood that it's in at the moment, this is going to be, I think it's an interesting time for them to play Newcastle because you know, they are what Newcastle want to be in not very long. Um, and I think they're going to show Newcastle exactly how far they've got to they've got to come before they get there. George, could Haaland find that he scores most of his goals away from home when teams perhaps come out a, a little bit more? Only eight touches, I think, mm. in the first half against Bournemouth last week. Gabby Albonnehor, my friend Gabby Albonnehor, he got slated for having the same amount of touches <laughs> in, in one game. I, I think he was well, livid on Twitter. How many of Gabby's were, uh, yeah, were, were assists, though? Because, you know, he, he was there creating even though True. even though he didn't get many touches I, I think it's probably quite likely um I think teams that look to play a, a, a higher line I don't think you're going to see any teams create you know play a high line against City but yeah when we say when we say a higher line step out from their own penalty I don't, I don't box think we're talking about going too <laughs> no, far, but, but we even yeah. saw it you know West Ham set up in a pretty low block on opening day but we still saw Harlan get in behind twice whereas at, at City teams are going to look to to frustrate and, and play very very deep so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case I think games like this especially is going to be where he's really going to, to flourish you know Eddie Howe's style of management the style of play that he likes to is stepping out and, and looking to press and looking to, to get the ball and play um, and that I think is where Haaland is going to look to play off the shoulder and, and pick up any scraps and when you've got you know the best progressive passer the best chance creator from, from deep areas in the world and Kevin De Bruyne providing the, the ammo for, for Haaland it's you know I, I can't see why what we saw at West Ham isn't going to be a, a pretty consistent theme uh, in City's away matches this season. How much of a test do you think Newcastle will be, Tim? Obviously, you know, West Ham are, are a great side on, on their day. They, they put up a, a reasonable fight against Manchester City, but this feels like the hardest game they'll have had so far in, in Newcastle because under Eddie Howe, they've, they've just been so good. Yeah, definitely. And especially at St James's Park as well. You know, that noise is going to be incredible. I was a little bit underwhelmed with, with Newcastle last week against, against Brighton. It'll be a very good Brighton team, but four shots one on target it's not great um, he solidified them hasn't he which is not what you usually expect from Eddie Howe I've got to say he has got that defence sorted Nick Pope will add to that as well yeah well that's that's the flip side I mean two clean sheets so far Nick Pope's getting you know Fantastic addition. The thing at Newcastle, uh, the thing about Newcastle at the moment is, is going forward. You know, Callum Wilson will score goals, albeit he's injury prone. You know, you'd expect that maybe to happen at some point this season. But otherwise, it's Almiron and St Maximan either side with Joe Linton behind. I mean, they all played a key part in sort of the momentum and the and the run of victories that they acquired towards the end of last season. But I do think they need some creative and clinical additions in and around that forward line. Anthony Gordon would, would be perfect. I don't know I don't know if there's much substance to the to the rumours linking him with a move from Everton. But um yeah, an important um couple of weeks ahead. Everybody looking forward to seeing what, what they can do in the market really. I, I do think they need a couple of additions. Yeah, talking of that market, George, Jao Pedro links are there at the moment that the Watford forward. Watford is saying that Newcastle need to come back with an improved offer upwards of thirty million potentially could do it. 
Would you write that signing for Newcastle? I think it would be a smart signing in terms of the potential that Joao Pedro's got. He hasn't shown it consistently enough. His talent is definitely not up for, for debate. Um, a player who, who's best playing is a Ted and he's a very good ball carrier. He's, he's certainly bulked up in the last couple of seasons. But I remember watching him on his debut um, or his first, it wasn't his debut, it was his first championship start on opening day against Borough a couple of seasons ago. I would have thought that his progression from then, given how good he looked on that day, despite being pretty slight and pretty raw, um, I'm surprised he hasn't done more so far. The issue for Newcastle is that he's got four years left to run on his deal. So there is absolutely no need for Watford to sell. We know that Juno Pozzo isn't somebody who takes the first bid and runs. Uh, so if they're going to want him, they're going to have to pay for him. But yeah, he's, he's certainly a player with, with plenty of talent. And I think in the right environment, maybe going to a club like Newcastle where he'll be part of a bigger squad rather than, than necessarily being relied on to play week in, week out could suit him. So I'd like the signing, but I'd, I'd kind of be surprised if they if they managed to, or if, they, if they're willing to stump up the cash needed to, to get him in. Yeah, and Adam Leventhal, our Watford writer, has been writing about Joao Pedro and how Rob Edwards wants him to stay at Watford amid the Newcastle interest. He's saying this is the right place for him at the moment. Predictions then for this one. Tim, you first. Mm, I feel like we're all being a bit predictable with our predictions <laughs> today. Although, well, maybe that's sort of the point, really. But... Um, yeah, I, th- I think Man City will win, but it, it'll it'll be tight. It won't be a walkover. Okay. Yeah, I think George. Newcastle will score. So maybe like a three-one or something like that. But yeah, but I think City will win. I think two-one. I think it, I think it, I think it will be tight. I think that St James's Park atmosphere could play a part. And I'm looking forward to watching Bruno Gomares because he's one of my favourite players to watch in the Premier League at the moment. Thank you very much for joining me today, chaps. That's all for this week. But remember, we'll be here every Friday throughout the season. Mark Chapman's going to be back on Monday hosting the Athletic Football Podcast four times a week this season and giving you the best insight into the biggest stories across the game. And finally, a reminder from me that you can sign up to the Athletic for just a pound a month and you'll get the best sports writing around as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Just head to theathletic.com slash footballpod to take advantage of that offer. We'll be back next week. Enjoy all the football of the weekend. The Athletic.